Welcome to episode 37 of the Bike Pack Canada podcast with yours truly, Ryan Corey. I'm excited for our new buffs coming out soon. Thanks to uh, everyone who has pre-ordered so far. Uh, we hope to ship those either the first or second week of December. And uh, anyone that wants to save on shipping and pick up in Canmore, please email me at info at bikepack.ca for a promo code. And uh, we'll have those bus ready for you around the same time uh, and also to pick up at uh, Rebound Cycle. Okay, my episode today is with Peyton McDonald of West Orange, New Jersey. When I uh, put out the request for new interviews a few weeks ago, Mac McCoy, father of the Great Divide mountain bike route, he reminded me of Peyton's Sonic Divide project uh, now circling a few film festivals. During this interview, Peyton and I will get into the music slash filmmaking process um, during his solo run along the Great Divide in June 2016. Um, Overall, I think it's a good reminder to stop and, you know, smell the roses, so to speak. For me, uh, that's usually telling myself every time I pull over to take stock of the world around me, to, you know, perhaps feel the bark of a tree, to hold a clump of dirt in my hand. And uh, to watch in awe as some little bug crawls up my leg. And uh, now perhaps uh, an added thought on how the vibration of my voice can affect the natural world. I hope you enjoy our interview. So originally, my when I started putting the whole thing together in early 2015, my initial idea was just to go out and make music in the wilderness like I had been doing for a while, but but actually commission pieces from the composers. And I thought, well, I'll just take a GoPro and record the performances and then just throw each of them up on YouTube. And and that would be the end of it. But then the pieces started coming in and boy, they were so beautiful and so interesting. So I, um, I thought, well, maybe I'll do an interview with one or two of the composers and then I'll put the interview at the end of the performance for the little YouTube video, just as sort of additional information for whoever might be checking it out. But the interviews were so inspiring and so beautiful and so creative. And that's when it started occurring to me, I guess it would have been kind of around June or so of 2015. I thought, you know what, I think, I think there might actually be a film here. And no, I did not have any experience in filmmaking. Um, but I had been composing music, you know, classical music for over 20 years. And I had gone through school as both a performer and a composer. (laughs) So, and I've written everything from pieces for large orchestras and wind ensembles to string quartets and solo percussion pieces, all kinds of stuff. So I had a, already a pretty good idea of how to manage energy and how to manage tension and release and how to tell a story, at least through sound. Um, and then I've been a, a pretty voracious reader my whole life and I've always enjoyed films. So I, you know, I I thought, well, let me see if I can do this. So I started learning the software and I, uh, I used Adobe Premiere and I took lessons from a guy and then I went through probably, I don't know, 20 or 30 of Premiere's tutorials. And then I started making all these little shorts leading up to the event. And that's really how I got my craft together was by making, I think I made about 10 or so of these shorts. Each one was anywhere from two minutes to seven or eight minutes. Um, and through that, I really got a handle on the software and started to get much deeper into filmmaking. And then most of those shorts I ended up putting online and then a month later taking them down because <laughs> I thought they were pretty, pretty bad from a filmmaking perspective. But, you know, so I kind of, in essence, went through a, a film school, sort of hyper compressed one over about an eight month period. And 
um, through a combination of lessons and tutorials and everything, I, I taught myself how to do it. Awesome. Well, let, let's take a step back for a sec. So let's, let's give um, the listeners a bit of background on. So you're, you're, you're a composer or you're a teacher also, as I understand it, and you're from New Jersey. So yeah, tell us a bit about yourself and your, your background with, with music and um, also, I guess, with bikepacking. Sure. So um, I was actually born and raised in Idaho Falls, Idaho, which is uh, a kind of a mid-sized town in southeast Idaho. And my parents used to have this cabin up near the Idaho and Wyoming border. And they started taking us up there every weekend by the time I was about five or six years old. And so from a very young age, I was spending a lot of time in the Rocky Mountains, uh, downhill skiing, cross-country skiing, mountain biking, hiking, uh, it was a big part of our family life. And then I used to pursue it just on my own as I got older and, and became a teenager. Um, I was never really competitive with any of those disciplines in the sense of racing, but it was something I took quite seriously and just really loved being in the mountains and being in nature. And then I gradually got into music. I think I got my first drum set when I was about, uh, well, actually, as I show in the beginning of the film, I first started playing organ. We had this little electric organ in our house. And I was having trouble with rhythm on this one of these pieces. I was about eight years old. And so the teacher told my mom that she, sh that she should get me some drumsticks and a practice pad so that I could work on my rhythm. But once I started playing the practice pad, I, I found that much more enjoyable than the organ. And I was able to convince my parents to get me a drum set. And so by about the time I was 10 or 11, I was playing drums and that I started with pop and rock and then I kind of got into jazz. And by the time I was a teenager, I was also playing classical music. And it turns out Idaho Falls, Idaho has a really vital music scene, um, primarily because there's a large Mormon population there. And I, I was not raised Mormon. We were kind of Christmas and Easter Methodists, but um, the, the Mormons in general take classical music quite seriously. So they get all their kids started playing at a very young age. And as a result, we had a youth symphony and we had a lot of different really good community groups and community choirs and all kinds of jazz bands. And so by the time I was in high school, I was, boy, I was playing music seemingly all day, every day. And I had gigs and rehearsals five or six nights out of the week. So it was actually a pretty good, um, pretty good education as a musician. It was great. And then I ended up going to the University of Michigan as a, as a music student. I did four years there and got my undergraduate degree. And then I did my master's and my doctorate at the Eastman School of Music, which is a conservatory that's part of the University of Rochester in upstate New York. And from there, I got into college teaching. So I taught at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh for three years. And then I landed the job that I have still have today, which is at William Patterson University in Wayne, New Jersey. It's about 20 miles west of New York City. And at the university, I teach percussion and I conduct various ensembles. And I um, also teach some courses on the classical music of India, which is another research area of mine. So that's kind of my musical journey. Um, and as a cyclist, I was racing BMX for many years when I was a kid. And then I got into mountain biking and um, I just rode bikes all through high school, all through my undergrad and graduate degrees. Um, and then when we moved to New Jersey, I kind of stopped for a few years. It took me a little while to figure out how to ride around here because the traffic is a bit complicated. And then I got deep into triathlon for a few years and I was racing all the way up to half Ironmans. 
And then again, I kind of veered into uh, mountain biking. And then I think it was around 2010 is when I really started getting into bike packing. And that's, I think, pretty much my permanent home at this point. So it's been about seven years now of, of pretty intense bike packing. Oh, wow. So leading up to the, the Great Divide uh, trip, what other kind of tours had you done? Yeah, so I um, I rode the AML, the Allegheny Mountain Loop, which is a 400-mile loop down in West Virginia, Virginia. And I did that as a um, an ITT. That was, I think, three years ago. And then I rode the Trans-Wisconsin, which is about a 580-mile route. Um heading south to north. And that one I did as a tour. I just did it on my own and I followed the route most of the way. And then towards the end, I veered off and went over to Duluth, Minnesota, because I have family there. And then I did about a 360 mile route in the Adirondacks. It was kind of a mix of, of different routes that I put together a few years ago. Um, and then in 2014, I went out to race the Tour Divide and I started in Banff and I left with the Grand Depart. And I lasted about five days. I was doing okay. I was kind of in the middle of the pack. Um, the other racers were really great people. I, I was very much enjoying the social part of it. Um, I thought they were all really inspiring and really cool people. But I, I just wasn't digging the race element of it. I, I like to race, you know, for a couple hours or maybe a day, but day after day for weeks on end, uh, I just, I couldn't, it wasn't motivating for me and it wasn't that interesting. And that's actually when I had the first idea about doing the Sonic Divide, because I remember I was at the top of a pass in Montana. I can't remember which one, um, Red Rock Pass maybe, but, and it, I was pushing my bike through all the snow and I was by myself and I started singing and my voice was reverberating around this beautiful lake that was kind of frozen over in the middle of June, of course. Um, and at that moment, I remember having this flash of inspiration thinking, you know what, this is the most amazing route I've come across, but I don't want to do it as a race. I want to come back and do it in my own way. That's musical. And the next day I dropped out of the race. It was a really kind of powerful moment for me. And then, um, I was going to come back in 2015, but I broke my wrist <laughs> mountain biking, actually. Um, so I kind of derailed that season. So I event, ended up doing the Sonic Divide in 2016. Gotcha. And that that was over, that was about a month in June, was it? Yep. Yeah, I was I was averaging about 100 mile days. And then I took, um, I took two days off in the middle just to back up data and, uh, to see my wife, she came out to see me. That was in the middle. We were in Silverthorne, Colorado. Um, and I took one or two half days cause I, I underestimated how much time it would take to back up all that data and kind of keep track of all the film part of it. Uh, so I lost a little bit of time there, but I wasn't racing. I was touring. And so, um, I followed the route about 95%. Uh, I was pretty faithful to it, but there were a few places where I I deviated on my own for whatever reason, just because I wanted to, or the weather was bad or something. Um, but yes, it was June, 2016. Awesome. And it looks like you went south to north. Was there any particular reason you, you decided to sort of go against the grain, so to speak? Yeah, because I was trying to game the weather. Um, in general, I do better in heat than I do in cold. And my experience in 2014 when we left Banff that morning, when crazy Larry sent us off, it was 40 degrees Fahrenheit and it was raining. 
And as we climbed, it turned into snow. And it was a really, really wet and frigid five days that I was out there. Um, and the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, I, in some ways, it doesn't make sense to be riding that route that high in the Rockies in the middle of June. I mean, when they when the ACA designed it, if you read the text that comes with it, you know, they originally were thinking of it more as a touring route. And their advice is to leave. If you're going to go southbound, their advice is to leave in August because the weather is much nicer um, up north and you avoid all the snow. And then by the time, you know, they, they, they kind of originally thought of it as sort of a two month project. And by the time you get down to New Mexico, the extreme heat has passed and the monsoon has also passed. So you're in some really nice riding weather by the time you get to the Mexican border. So my idea, you know, I didn't want to take two months to do it. I like pushing big miles and I, I felt there was a certain, I mean, there's a certain aesthetics to cycling as there is in music. And for me, I like the aesthetics of being in the saddle all day. Um, but I knew that if I went northbound, I thought I might do better with the weather. And that turned out to be true. I mean, it was still extremely hot in New Mexico and I had some trouble early on with that, but it wasn't as bad as it would be a month later. And then by the time I got up to the Canadian border, a lot of the snow had melted and the passes were much more passable. So, um, yeah, I actually find it strange that the race goes southbound. It seems to me, in terms of the weather, it makes more sense to go northbound. But on the other hand, those challenges are also interesting, too, when you're dealing with the snow. Yeah, I actually, I live down the road in uh, Canmore, so about, um, you know, 20-minute drive from Banff. And, uh, yeah, I would agree. August would be, if I had to choose a window, August would be the time that I would leave if I was heading southbound. Okay, so that makes sense. So that's why you started uh, south. And it, I, the, the the movie, it it looks like you end at the border. Did you go all the way to Banff or did you finish at uh, Roosevelt? Nope, I finished at the border. Um, I had already ridden the Canadian Spur and I felt like it just sort of made a cleaner story, honestly, sort of from a filmmaking perspective, going border to border. So I did the 2,500 miles and then I stopped. Gotcha. So for those that haven't seen the film, what well, actually maybe let's start with how, how can we see the film? <laughs> yeah. So here's the deal. The film is winding its way through the film festival circuit right now. Um, and I've been very humbled and, and blessed that it, it has been selected for five film festivals uh, and it even won Best Documentary in one of them, which was very much a surprise to me, but a, a delightful one. But I, the deal is that when film festivals are considering it, they generally will not look at a film that is already available to the public. So I have a, I have it up on Vimeo, and I have three versions of the film. I have the, a 10-minute short. I have an hour-long version that I made actually for the Bikepacking Summit in Colorado that's that – I cut out some of the music stuff. So it's a little more focused on the cycling. And then I have the full hour and a half version. That's really a 50, 50 balance between the music and the cycling and all three of them are up there, but they they're password protected and I'm keeping them that way until I guess mid January, at which point I'll have heard back from all the festivals I've applied to. And then I'll take the passwords off and release them to the world and, um, people can do whatever they want with it. Nice. Okay, so what what is the Sonic Divide project? How how would you explain it to someone who doesn't know? Sonic Divide is a large-scale performance art piece that brings together creative music, 
ultra distance mountain biking and film. Gotcha. So you were very much kind of improvising with the, 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 the instruments that nature to some extent provided you. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, the nature of the, the composure or I'm not sure if I'm using the right word, but the compositions and mm-hmm. uh, how those came about. Sure. So a lot of the music I perform as a professional percussionist would fall into a label. Most people label it as something like avant-garde music or experimental music. Um, there's a great American composer named Lou Harrison who once said that what we do is we're in the R&D department of music. <laughs> so we, we're always looking at new ways to make music and new kinds of sounds and combinations of sounds and ways to structure it. Um, so there's a tradition of this in North America primarily uh, since as early as the 1930s of percussionists playing on what are called found objects, which means anything that's around you. So it could be a table, it could be the floor, it could be a cup, uh, it could be a lamp, etc. And so that tradition has been, for me, has been around for a long time in terms of the kind of music I play. The early composers who were experimenting with that would be people like John Cage or Lou Harrison, um, Henry Cowell, people like that. So that's been a, a part of my life as a percussionist for a long time. And I've for for many years now, as I've been going on bikepacking trips, overnighters and bigger trips, I often take with me a little pair of drumsticks or mallets and I drum on things that I find out in the wilderness. A lot of times you find logs that are really resonant, actually, and very beautiful sounding. And you can mash together collections of leaves. You can play on water. You can play on rocks. You can play on whatever you can find, actually. And sometimes I connect that with singing or improvised vocal kinds of techniques. So so that's kind of musically where all this is coming from. The composers I approached are people who work in this field of experimental music. So um, many of these people have quite visible and... Uh, respected careers, but none of them would be household names in the way that, you know, someone like, um, you know, John Williams, who wrote the music for Star Wars, for example, you know, some a lot of people in the general public would know who he is. But most of the composers I'm working with are doing more experimental kind of underground stuff. Um, So I approached a whole bunch of them and I told them, you know, look, I'm planning on going out on this huge bike journey. I want to make music each day, um, but I want to I wanted the composers to write pieces for me and to give me some structure to play in. And I'm a composer myself. So the question is, well, why didn't I just write all the music myself? And the answer is that I, I really thought it would be much more collaborative to bring more people into the project because I thought these other composers would see things into it that I might not see and that they would expand me as a musician and challenge me as a musician in the same way that the divide route was challenging me as an athlete. And that ended up being true. It was so amazing to see how creative all these people were, like all the different things they saw into this journey that I wouldn't have seen on my own. So the pieces they wrote, some of them look like regular normal music notation. Some of them are just text. It's like a series of instructions to do this or that. Some of them are a combination of the two. Some of them look more like works of visual art, like abstract works of art. They're kind of more like a 
you know, like a painting or a, or a pictogram of sorts. Um, some of them are quite conceptual. Some of them are more conventionally groovy and tuneful. They come in all different shapes and sizes. Hmm. So, and the idea was that you would, um, you would play each of these compositions when you reached, uh, you know, a different part of uh, a divide crossing. Yeah. The original idea is that I would do them all at divide crossings. Um, but once I got into it, I realized that, that it, that was still a very good framework. And I think I ended up performing about 80% of them at divide crossings. But sometimes I got to a divide crossing and frankly, it just wasn't that interesting. I mean, it wasn't that interesting sonically. It wasn't that interesting cinematically in terms of camera shots and stuff. Um, or it was dumping rain <laughs> or, you know, or I was not feeling very well at all or whatever, you know? So I realized quickly, rather quickly by about the half, you know, by about halfway through New Mexico, I realized that it would be better to use that idea as a framework, but to allow myself some flexibility so that I can make music in spots that really felt right. Yeah, actually. And now that I'm thinking about it, one of your, I think it was like maybe your second or third composition that was in an area that I seem to remember like Black Canyon down in the the Gila where you met the the guy that was uh, the older gentleman that was just hanging out down there with his guitar so I guess that wouldn't have necessarily been a divide crossing but just maybe some spot where there was some shade (laughs) yeah actually I I think the one you might be referring to that might have been Nathaniel Bartlett's performance that is actually a divide crossing but it's very bizarre um I would, you know, you just turn on this gravel road and according to all the waypoints, because I dropped all the divide crossings onto my GPX file as waypoints, I was at a divide crossing and I double checked with the map and sure enough, I was. And, you know, that happened a lot. A lot of the divide crossings are, are really not remarkable in any way. And I later learned from talking with geologists and geographers that a lot of the continental divide is kind of underground in a certain way. Um, in terms of directing which way the water flows, it does that, but it doesn't have any kind of obvious features on the surface. Whereas other times, you know, you're at the top of a mountain and you, you very clearly feel like you're on this divide looking one way or the other. Um, but that one actually, if, if we're thinking the same one, that one was actually at a divide crossing. It's okay. just a rather kind of pedestrian one in some ways. Cool. So I, I, one of the one of the interviews that stood out to me, so you have interviews with all the different uh, composers, and they're all kind of characters in their own right. And um, mm-hmm. there was one gentleman, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but he was talking about how we all, you know, humans and, and animals alike all respond to vibrations, which, you know, music very much is. So I, I got to, to wondering, and you, you kind of talk about this a little bit, but for yourself, were you, were you, you know, at recording and doing the, 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 the compositions mainly for yourself? Were you doing it for your audience, which I guess is nature? Is it a little bit of both? Like, who, I guess, who was this for, like, when you were playing the music? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, the composer you were thinking of is Stuart Saunders Smith. He um, he lives up in Vermont now, and he's a just a beautiful, beautiful soul with a lot of wisdom. Um, you know, Ryan, I think it's all. I think it's three 
things I was performing for. One was for myself. And so I guess in that sense, it's not really a performance, but more of just making music. One was for nature. I mean, I'm adding, I think Stuart's right. I'm adding these vibrations to the natural world and maybe it means nothing, but maybe it does add something to the world. And I think three was the film. So, um, I did generally have the cameras rolling and I would usually just start them and then I would go and do three, four, even five or six takes of each piece. And I would usually forget that the cameras were on after a while, which is kind of a nice place to be. Um, but I, you know, I was at some level always aware that I was filming these things and that they would later be shared with the world um, through that medium. Gotcha. So the the behind the scenes music um, now piece. So you had multiple cameras going, or just it looked like you had a GoPro and a um, and, you know a separate audio recorder. Was there anything else? Yeah, I carried uh, two different GoPros. I had a Session and a Hero 4. I had the Zoom for to get higher quality audio, and then I used my phone for some of them. And then um, when Jessica came to visit me, that's my wife, when she came to visit me for two days in Colorado, there was one piece we went out in the woods and filmed by Asha Srinivasan um, that was near a divide crossing. And that one I had a DSLR camera for, but all the rest, I just used the, the two GoPros and the phone. Nice. And so you were talking about some of the challenge was just backing up, uh, all the data, which from afar is even more challenging. So I imagine were you, were you like emailing this back to yourself or, you know, what was the backup process? I carried with me a bunch of extra thumb drives. And when I would come into towns, <laughs> um, you know, people often ask me, they, they they say, well, you know, did you get a motel every night? And I said, no, I, I, I got a motel every third or fourth night and I would camp in the other nights. And people always say, oh, it must have been so great to come into a town and get a hotel. And I always say, no, it's terrible, <laughs> actually, because whenever I was in the towns, I was so stressed out. I mean, I would first of all, I'd have to find a computer somewhere. So sometimes I'd go to a public library or the hotel would let me use theirs. And then I'd have to pr- start this process of moving all this data around. Meanwhile, and you know about this because of all the stuff you've done. Meanwhile, I'd have to go down the street and like try to do laundry and then simultaneously go to the grocery store and stock up on calories for the next few days and call my mother and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I found the towns, I was just multitasking like crazy. And I found the towns to be very stressful. And oftentimes things are only open for another hour or two. And so you're trying to, trying to figure out all the hours and then by the time you finally, by the time I finally got to bed, it'd be like midnight or one in the morning and I'd sleep for three hours and then I'd be up pedaling again. So I, I much preferred the wilderness nights because those are the most beautiful nights when you just pedal and pedal and the sun goes down, you pedal some more, you find a beautiful spot and you cash out. I mean, that's the best. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people that haven't done this before, they don't realize how much time you get, you know, when you're in a town, you get sucked into all these little tasks and you yep. know, you know, you have to do them, but it's almost frustrating in its own right. It, it feels like it takes way longer than, than it should. And you weren't even racing. So, um, right. that even puts it in, even in more perspective. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you're, you, you, you touch on this about, um, you know, you hit a bit of a low point as far as, um, feeling it, that the, the music might not be up to 
you know, the, the standard that you'd want it to be because you can only spend so much time out there. And, and like you said, you got to get to the town before it closes. Um, did it, did you kind of get over that hump or was it always a source of kind of anxiety as far as, you know, kind of fe- feeling beholden to, to doing these music pieces or, or was it, you know, meditative? Yeah, that's a really good question, Ryan. Um, yeah, you know, I learned how to do this by, you know, by the, by, I'd say by the time I was kind of in, in Wyoming, I felt like I was really in my groove and it, you know, it wasn't my first rodeo in any sense. I mean, I had done a lot of, a lot of big trips and I'd pushed some really big miles in the past. Um, and on a, many of my previous trips, I'd stopped to make music, but including the film part of it really, I mean, having three things I was trying to balance the cycling, the music and the film kind of tipped me over the edge a little bit for the first week or so in a way that I guess took me by surprise a little bit because the filming is, is a concern too. There were so many times I thought, man, I should really stop and film this, but I didn't want to stop. You know, I was in a, I mean, you know, you know, as a fellow rider, you get into those those flow states when you're riding and, and you want to just keep that flow state going, or there was a big storm bearing down on me, or I'm trying to get to a town before it closes, um, so that I can get a, a reasonable meal or whatever. So the, the filming part was really, I would say in some ways almost harder than the music in terms of trying to figure out how to balance all these things. But by the time I got up to Wyoming, I still wasn't sure really until I got home, whether the musical performances were worth much. But I would say as I got further north, I just kind of got accustomed to juggling all three of those balls. It's a little bit like having kids. You know, my wife and I have two kids now and and our daughter just had her 10th birthday the other day. And the idea of juggling fatherhood with a career and everything else, I'm just so used to it now. It doesn't seem like that big a deal. But I remember when we first had the kids, it was just such a, a life change. So it was kind of like that. I kind of learned how to do it as it went on. And over those, uh, over those miles, were there, you know, any particular passes or moments that really stood out to you, whether it was the, the, the times where you're making music or just parts of the route that, uh, you, you'll always remember? Oh, there's so many, <laughs> there were so many. And I, I tried to capture some of them on film. I mean, there, there's the, those two really big, I, I, sort of think of them as, as these two big tests in a way. The Gila is definitely one of them and the Basin is another one. They're big stretches and there's nothing out there, as you know, because you've ridden the route and um, you really, you know, you got to have your act together before you go into those spaces, both, you know, from a safety standpoint and just from kind of a mental health standpoint. So um, those stood out to me just because of the intensity of them. But there were so many beautiful moments. I remember one you know, one time in, in New Mexico, I crested this hill and all of a sudden, I think I was in the El Malpais area and I just had this enormous panorama of just some of the most beautiful rock structures I'd ever seen. And the sun was setting and so it was casting these shadows and there were these beautiful uh, oranges and reds that were kind of burning, kind of bursting out from the rocks. And it was so extraordinary. And I thought, I remember thinking, oh, I should stop and film this. And then I thought, no. This one's just for me. <laughs> and I kept pedaling. And there were moments like that all the time. It's a very special route. And I think 
I think what Michael McCoy and all the good people at ACA did to put that together was a major contribution to the world. I mean, really a beautiful contribution. And so many lives have been changed in so many positive ways because of it. So I'm very grateful for that. So I, I'm sorry, I can't really reduce it to one or two in particular. There were literally hundreds and hundreds. Yeah, I, one that just jumped out to me that I really liked was uh, I was really happy for you that you had that sort of serendipitous moment at uh, Pie Town where you had not only the 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 fellow travelers that were uh, musicians, but you also had uh, Nita who owns uh, the home, and they were all a part of uh, the film. That looked like it was a special night. Oh, it was. It was so special. And, you know, that's like I said about when I did the race in 2014, you know, the, the folks who pursue these kinds of things, there's usually a kind of fire burning through them that's that has a lot of warmth and a lot of light. And it's just enjoyable to be around that. Yeah, that was a really special night. Cool. So your your background is is seems predominantly in the percussion percussion, but you you also dabble into the the again i I don't know what the proper term was but the the indian music like what where's what's the background on that that pursuit yeah actually the the indian music is um i would say it's nearly 50 percent of my career now it's it's been quite a journey so i started way back in 1997 started studying the drumming tradition of north indian classical music um and those drums are called tabla drums it's a little pair of hand drums that are capable of making an astonishing variety of sounds. And the music that goes along with them is phenomenally complex. It's some of the most rhythmically sophisticated and complex music anywhere on the globe. And it's very evolved. Indian classical music has been around for several thousand years. And uh, the practitioners of these of this art form have really taken it to a high level. So I studied tabla drumming for about 15 years or so. I guess it was about 14 years. And then in 2011, my tabla guru, whose name, he was Pandit Sharda Sahai. He makes a brief appearance in in the film. He passed away. And for a variety of reasons, I, I decided to redirect my energy towards Hindustani vocal music. I had been singing, I'd been taking lessons off and on, but never really with the intent to perform. I was mainly just learning about it so that as a professor, when I teach the classes, I'm better informed. But for a variety of reasons, I decided to switch over to vocal. And and since then, I've been studying with the Gundecha brothers, who are uh, two of the greatest singers in the North Indian classical tradition. And now I'm performing as an Indian vocalist nearly as much as a percussionist. Last year, I sang almost 30 concerts as a classical Indian vocalist. Um, So that's been a big part of my life. I would say it's basically kind of 50 50 with my my western career wow so the 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 film now is it's out in in film festivals or it's getting looked at by film festivals um so now you're you're definitely back into you know filmmaker mode and and the distribution of it what what are some of the lessons you're learning these days with the film getting out there well it's a little bit like the music world um it's well first of all it's tough I mean, the numbers are brutal. You know, some of the film festivals I was accepted to and some of the ones I was rejected to sent numbers. And for a lot of these festivals, they're getting, you know, around 3000 applicants and they they select 20 films or so. So it's tough. It's tough to get your work out there. It's tough to get into festivals. Um, There are a lot of really good filmmakers out there. I'm learning that. And that's a beautiful thing. 
And it's a little bit like the music industry in the sense that there are a lot of people doing a lot of work and it's much easier than ever before to get it available to the public because of the internet. The problem is there's so much work being produced, it's very hard for people to know how to find it unless you have a multi-million dollar promotion machine behind you, which I do not. So what that means is that word of mouth is a big part of getting work out there and more importantly, I think, is connecting with your community. Um, and um, I think of Mike uh, Dion or Dion has done a really wonderful job of that. You know, he's he's been really great about connecting with the bikepacking community and nurturing that community through his the three films he's done. So he's been an inspiration for me, and I, I've seen the way he's done that. And so that's my hopes, you know, as I finish up the film festival circuit and release the Sonic Divide to the world is that I try to connect with the bikepacking community. I try to connect with people who are interested in more experimental music. Um, and I also think as an educator, I'm going to work hard at connecting with educational institutions, uh, basically K through 12 and especially high school and college level. I think that's a good market for what I'm doing. I've done a bunch of screenings at universities over the past six months, and it's been really uh, inspiring to see how uh, powerful the film has been for a lot of university students. I've had many of them come up to me afterwards and say things like, you know, wow, that completely changed my life. I never thought of bringing my passions together like that. It, it's given me all kinds of ideas for things I can do, et cetera. So I think those are the the three communities I'm going to look at trying to share my work with, um, and go forward. I'm, but I'm, you know, I'm already looking at, I'm already working on my next project. So in some sense, I'm kind of on the tail end of the sonic divide now. Well, that was going to be my next question. I don't know if you want to chat about it, but you know, is, is there, is there a sequel or something similar, uh, in the works? Oh yeah. Now, um, <laughs> now that I did it and I had a taste for it, um, yeah. So I have two big projects planned over the next couple of years. Next year, there is a route in Vermont called the Super 8 route that the Vermont Bikepacking Association guys put together. And I rode about 200 miles of it a few months ago with my wife. We, we did the lower third of it. It's a 600 mile route. So I'm looking at next summer. My plan is to ride that route. And I'm not going to commission composers for this one, but I'm going to spend a lot of time recording drone sounds that you hear in nature. Um, there's a lot of running water on that route, actually. And the running water has a lot of beautiful music in it, actually, if you take time to stop and listen to it. So I'm going to record a lot of the drones. I'm going to ride the route. I'm going to make music when I'm out there. And I kind of got interested in other ways of looking at these things. So I've, I've hooked up with a mathematician, and it turns out there's all this interesting number theory that surrounds the number eight. And of course, when you tip the number eight on its side, it becomes the infinity symbol, which is also kind of interesting. So I've, I've connected with a philosopher. So this next project, which I'm tentatively calling Sonic 8, um, I'm going to be looking at the number eight and I'm going to be riding this super eight route and I'm going to be making music that deals with drones and infinity. And I think this project may end up being a little more uh, in some ways abstract, a little bit less narrative, but I'm going to be, it's really going to be a meditation on numbers and infinity and long distance riding and the kinds of natural drones you find out there. So that's what I'm looking to do in next summer. And then 2019, if all goes well, I'm looking at that American trail route, which runs from um, the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. 
the or the TA, what do they call it? The TAR or TAT? That's the 5,000 mile route. And I think for that project, I'm probably going to do what I did with the Sonic Divide, which is where I'll commission a bunch of composers and and figure out a way to weave all that together. Huh. Well, well, Peyton, you've definitely found your stick, if you want to call it that. I don't think anyone's <laughs> going to be uh, re- repeating what you what you've done, but. Uh, you know, if I'm, I'm being 100% transparent, when I was chatting with Lindsay and Neil uh, uh, a few days ago or last week, um, you know, I said while I was watching, so I watched the the full the, the hour and a half uh, version that oh, you okay. have, and um, I I told them I said it, it took me about 10 minutes to get into it because it caught me it, like it felt like a blindside hit. Like I knew I know the divide so well, but the way you approached it was so foreign to me, and. Huh. You know, like, you know, to me, music is when I press play on my iPod. But, you know, to to see it from your perspective after about that, you know, first 10 minutes, you know, when you when you're fidgeting around um, Silver City and your mic's falling over and, you know, you're, <laughs> you're trying to find your rhythm to to see your your passion um, and for the divide and to see it expressed in such a unique way, it almost felt like um you know, a book someone had given me like a really big book and I didn't necessarily have a, an interest in it right away. But once I got into it, it was, you know, like it, it felt good for the soul to, to learn about something different, but uh, related at, at the same time. So I, I joke about you finding your stick, but I, I also commend you. I think it's uh, um, yeah, so many of us, if we were to you know put a GoPro on our helmet or wherever, it would be the same old thing over and over again. And uh, it was it was very refreshing to to see your take on it, and um, we'll we'll definitely keep tabs tabs on uh, future projects. So uh, I, I know you got to run here, Peyton, but thank you thank you very much for you know sh- sharing your passion and doing it so openly, uh, not feeling oh, not feeling guarded. Um, you know, being an artist, I, I can appreciate that. You know, just putting something out there, you, you're exposing yourself and. Uh, yeah, I think we're all we're all better for it. So we'll uh, when, whenever whenever you get uh, or whenever you put it online, whether it's iTunes or whatever, make sure to send us a link and uh, we'll share it with our uh, our bike packing community. And uh, yeah, thank you very much again. Oh, my pleasure, man. And thanks. Thanks for saying that. That means a lot to me because, you know, look, I, I'm very aware, of course, that what I do as a musician is very, very niche, you know, for small audience kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's all, as the Phil, as the composer, Phil Glass said, you know, it's all about decimal points and I'm, I'm a f- quite a few decimal points away from Lady Gaga, but, <laughs> um, it, part of what I was trying to do with the Sonic Divide is share this passion I have for this kind of weird, wacky, creative music. And I know that, you know, most people it's, it's a little strange, you know, it does, a lot of it doesn't have a beat. It doesn't have a recognizable melody. It's a little hard to get into, um, right off the bat. But I've also found over the years that a lot of times when people do come to a concert, that if you really put your heart into it and you really share it with, with all the, you know, passion that you have, that a lot of times it actually ends up speaking to them and it opens their ears to other ways of, of hearing music. And so I was trying to, in some ways convey that through the film. So the fact that you had that experience is, um, really wonderful. And thanks for telling me that. For sure. All right, Payne, well, I'll let you get back to it, but, uh, yeah, thanks for, for spending the hour with me and we'll catch up again on, uh, when the Sonic eight comes out. 
All right. Thanks, man. Take care and best wishes um, with everything you're doing. And we'll, we'll talk soon. For sure. Thanks, man. Have a good night. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.